welcome and thank you for arranging yourselves. Welcome everybody to this Open and Wales Literary Salon. So, um, where we will be having uh, literature and also possibly shopping or shoplifting, uh, depending on how talented you are. Um, we've been hosting salons with Auburn and Wells now for three years, um, and we had the first one with uh, the dear departed Sebastian Horsley, um, and since him our fellow guests have included Molly Parkin, Jessica Fellows, Ella Batchman, Niven Govinden, who's here ladies and gentlemen, uh, Travis Elbert, and all sorts of other literary lovelies, uh, most of whom are alive. Um, tonight we have the very fantastic Alex Preston and the lovely Jake Arnott, ladies and gentlemen, they're here for us. Also alive, also alive. Uh, a couple of quick housekeeping items. If you can just turn your phones off, just make sure that they are on silent. And if you're going to tweet, uh, you can do that using the hashtag LitSalon. Unlike Shoreditch House, there is no pizza. Um, as I don't get any pizza there anyway, I'm not that bothered. Um, so parts of this evening will go on iTunes as well, just so you know. Um, so to this evening, I've been thinking a lot lately uh, about secrets and lies, and I think it's partly to do with having just finished a memoir um, and thinking about all the lies, basically, that my parents told me uh, for years. Um, <laughs> so um, it's partly about that, but it's also just about, uh, about the kind of stuff that I've been reading lately, and I was thinking about this evening and the two choices that I wanted to, to make. Um, and they both talk about secrets and lies um, in different ways, and that ultimately is what is at the heart of every story. Um, and so we're going to be talking about that thematically tonight, um, and Jake is going to be reading from his new novel for the very first time. Very exciting. Round of applause for that. So um, up first is Alex Preston. So um, in she's going to she's going to come. welcome welcome Alex to the stage, ladies and gentlemen. Normally, normally I would normally I would disappear and let him have the spotlight all to himself. But as there's nowhere else to sit, I'm just going to sit here like this dummy, basically next to me. Um, I'm going to be even more still than that. Um, so Alex's debut was a, was a sensation, um, um, this bleeding city, um, and it, he used his experiences, um, partly his experiences um, in the city, uh, to create a novel that commented on uh, the credit crunch and humanized it and dramatized it. And in his new novel, The Revelations, he reveals the sinister world of the course, um, where a quest for meaning um, among a young money delete much like yourselves um, <laughs> becomes a fight for life. So please welcome Alex Preston. All, all, I like all of this, you know, talking uh, about a book about beautiful young people paying uh, desperate homage to a charismatic priest. This is all working very nicely <laughs> for so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from the start of the novel. It's, as Damien says, a novel about a kind of shady evangelical cult that draws in a lot of young people who uh, have reached that time where they've left university, they've come down to London, and they're finding life very difficult, very dark, very depressing. They haven't really got a community, the sort of community they had at school, at university. Um, and this evangelical cult provides them with that community uh, but then it all goes wrong. The train clattered through the darkness. It was an old train, and the carriages bucked and wheezed, struggling against the buffers that stopped them flying off into the night. The sea lay in shadows to the left. To the right was a thin strip of pale blue horizon, trees and a mountain range that rose and fell, visible only by the sudden absence of light. On the left side now, 
a refinery on the shore. Gas flares lit the water, red and gold, golden red. Mouse pressed his nose against the window and watched the flames dance upon the water. He said it opened the window and lit a cigarette. It burnt down quickly in the blast of rich, warm air that swept into the carriage. When the cigarette was finished, he sent it spinning out into the night, following the small red spark as it was whipped away by the wind. It was now entirely dark outside the hurtling train. He stared into the blackness, past the chubby ghost of his reflection, thinking ahead to London, the course, and Lee. He reached into his bag, drew out his battered mobile phone, and sent her a text, grinning as he typed. He walked from Euston, dragging his suitcase behind him. It took him over an hour, but he liked walking in London at night when there were few people around. Taxis, lights extinguished, carried tired drivers home to the suburbs. A young couple walked ahead of him, elbows linked, perhaps drunk. Their bodies swayed together and apart like fronds of seaweed. The girl tripped and the boy placed a protective arm around her shoulders. Mouse hurried past them, wheezing. He made his way into the echoing darkness under the Westway and stepped carefully along the pavement that clung to the edge of the underpass. Little Venice dozed in the warm September night, slabs of light thrown onto the water from a handful of lit windows. A moorhen hooted somewhere out of sight. Mouse quickened his pace, his feet scuffing the stones of the towpath. Rubbish floated in the lagoon, drifting between the thin fingers of a willow tree that stirred the water absent-mindedly picking through beer cans and polystyrene cups and plastic bags. In the shadow of Trellick Tower, he stopped to smoke a cigarette. Sitting on his suitcase in the long grass that bordered the path, the vegetation was thick and dry. He plucked a stalk of grass and ran the feathery end under his round chin. He needed a shave. He wanted to look good for the course. Flicking his cigarette into the water, he grabbed the handle of his bag and continued along the canal. Finally, he came to the boat. It sat moored between two barges, uglier and higher than its neighbours. Gentle Ben, the name in ornate serif lettering on the stern, was an old Dawncraft dandy, <coughs> once the white weekend plaything of a pinstriped yucky. Y uh, pinstriped yuppie. There's Yucky was Floyd, white, I think Freudian was, slip, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of the bad sex there is to come. Um, <laughs> be excited, people. It was now a dirty cream colour. The curtains were brown and raggy. The toilet gurgled foul smells. But the boat allowed Mouse to live in London, to exist amongst his friends. He loved the flap of the water against the hull at night, the dawn song of birds in Kensal Green Cemetery, the gasometers that sighed as they sank, moaned as they rose. A Jolly Roger fluttered gaily from the stern of the boat, <coughs> the white skull just visible in the dim light. Mouse let himself into the cabin, turned on the generator, and threw himself down on the narrow bed. Lielek sat on her balcony, looking out over the lights of London. A book lay open on her lap, but it was too dark to read. The petals of the heavy-headed rose that climbed the trellis behind her had faded to grey in the dusk. Her hair was twisted into a bun and held in place with a pencil. A single blonde strand dropped down her cheek and she drew it into her mouth, feeling the sharp ends of the hairs, prodding at them with her tongue. Darwin was asleep beside her bare feet. The Dachshund was dreaming. His short back legs galloped the air. His wet black nose twitched. Lee lit a cigarette. Music played on the stereo inside, quietly enough that single notes only emerged occasionally, 
hesitantly, wrenched from among the sounds of the city, taxis rushing up Kensington Church Street, aeroplanes queuing to land at Heathrow, shouts from the bars on the high street. She drew smoke into her mouth and blew it out of her nose. She had stumbled out of the library earlier, her breaths coming in quick gasps. It was one of her mood-swung days. She couldn't focus on the self-righteous saints and strung-out mystics she was supposed to be writing about. She skipped lunch and spent the afternoon walking purposeful diagonals across Holland Park. Darwin whipped along on his leash behind her like a crashed kite. An hour before the gates of the park closed, she sat down heavily on a bench in front of the orangery. She took deep breaths, stilled her mind, and ran her hand through Darwin's soft brown coat. She usually knew how to drag herself up from these depths, but this time she couldn't shake the feeling of doom that smudged her vision and quickened her breath. She walked home along the high street, stopping to buy herself sushi from the Japanese takeout on the corner, up the winding staircase to her flat under the eaves of the old Kensington house. They ate dinner together on the tiny veranda, and then music and wine and cigarettes and a book, and slowly the warm day faded around her. At 7.30, she watched the parakeets make their way squawking overhead, flying along the faded, milky rails of vapor trails. She imagined them towing the night behind them as they arrowed westwards towards Holland Park, a dark cover attached to the feathers of their tails. She had bestowed upon the birds great symbolism, looked for them desperately if they failed to appear, straining her thin frame over the balcony rail to see around the spire of St. Mary Abbot's as if they were the only thing left of hope. Darwin woke with a start, glanced at Lee through long, dark lashes, then stretched out with a creaking yawn. With a last look out over the flickering city, Lee went inside, Darwin trotting behind her. Brushing her teeth in the small oval mirror, she thought ahead to the course. Tomorrow would be their first session as leaders. She shivered. Looking deep into the mirror, past the freckled remains of the summer, that sat upon her nose. She imagined standing up on the stage the next day and fainting, falling face first into the crowd of new members. She blinked and spat into the sink. A high single bed was perched beneath the skylight in Lee's small, untidy bedroom. An upright piano stood against one wall. Photograph albums were spread out on the floor, half filled with black and white pictures. Books rose in rickety piles either side of the bed. Several more sat face down next to her pillow. She swept them to the ground. Lee peeled back the white duvet cover, took off her clothes and let them lie where they fell. She lifted Darwin onto the foot of the bed, slid under the duvet and sat up very straight, her eyes wide open, watching the rise and fall of the sausage dog's sleeping body. It would all be fine once Mouse was here. She pictured his face, the darting protuberant protuberant eyes, the chubby cheeks flushed red, the shriek of blonde hair. Her phone beeped. She read the text and smiled, sank back onto her pillows and stared up at the ceiling, the mobile still gripped in her small, hot hand. (coughs) Marcus Glass lay on his back looking up at his wife. Abby's eyes were tightly closed. Her bottom lip was leached of colour as large teeth bit down upon it. Her hands were pressed to her chest, flattening white breasts. She let out a series of high-pitched moans. He never felt further from her than when they were having sex. He didn't know whether her groans were indicative of pleasure or annoyance, couldn't tell if her pinched face meant that she was lost in the moment or boiling with frustration. 
He placed his hands on her large thighs, and she, irritated, opened her eyes for a moment, lifted them off, and resumed the grinding rhythm. Don't move! Her voice came thick and sharp. Now, move! A little bit. Just there. No, no, not there. Now come out and go back in again. Marcus was fairly sure that she was already pregnant. He kept a record of her periods on his calendar at work and watched for tampons in the bathroom bin. As he looked up, he saw a slight heaviness around her jaw, a swelling of her nipples. But they continued to have sex as if it were a religious ritual, with the same unthinking repetition. He knew it was partly for the relief of orgasm, for those white seconds in which she could spit herself out of the world. But she didn't enjoy any of the build-up. He saw her struggling above him. He blamed the course. It never used to be this bad. When they were first together, it had been wonderful. Occasionally difficult, but ultimately magnificent. Now it was like watching someone laboring up a hill, leaning into the wind and trudging desperately to the top. <laughs> he could see her nails digging into her chest and knew that there would be ten crescents of blood by the time they finished. That's it. You've almost got it. A bit faster. That's it. Marcus thought about death to stop himself coming. <laughs> Abby insisted that she was more likely to conceive if she came, and so she pushed herself towards orgasm after increasingly joyless orgasm. As Marcus began to move more quickly beneath her, as he became aware of the friction and the warmth and the first whispers of pleasure, he thought of clay-cold death. But he had to work hard to stop himself panicking. Once, he had thrown Abby backwards, staggered to the bathroom, and plunged his head into a basin of cold water until the frantic beating in his chest stopped. But now... Two years into their marriage, he was able to control the rush of terror. Oh, come on, Marcus. Sorry, I mean, please keep going. No, not that fast. Relax. Don't come just yet. He pictured his father on the tennis court. It was high <laughs> summer, and their shadows danced beneath them. Marcus was hitting the ball well. The heavy air hummed with the wump of his ground strokes, the quiver of strings, the skidding of quick-stopped trainers. He sent his father running from one tramline to the other, cut drop shots skimming wick wickedly over the net. The day heated up around them. As Abby's moans rose in pitch, Marcus remembered the moment he saw his father's racket drop to the ground. The ball he was about to hit thumped into the fence at the back of the court. His father sank to his knees. Marcus leapt the net and fell to his own knees to face his father. Through the white t-shirt, translucent with sweat, Marcus could see a dark triangle forming just below his father's throat. He remembered thinking it looked like a vagina, a purple vagina creating itself beneath the damp cotton. Slowly, his father fell backwards. Marcus pressed at his chest, panted stale air into his lungs, screamed and shrieked until his mother came sprinting down from the house, wringing her hands and already sobbing. Marcus's sister arrived a few moments later, by which time it was clear that their father was dead. As his sister sat down, deflated against the crosshatch fence of the tennis court, Marcus watched something change in her face something irrevocable that would colour everything that followed. He recognised it because he felt the same thing himself. He was 19. Bellowing, Abby came. Marcus, with a little exhausted sigh, followed. He felt himself grow limp quickly afterwards, suddenly lost within her. Abby scrunched her eyes shut, milking the last shudders. When it was over, she seemed smaller, slightly ashamed. She rocked backwards and lay with her pelvis tilted upwards, a pillow thrust beneath her buttocks. Marcus got up and walked to the window. Outside, there was nothing but dark sky and, in the distance, the black coffin of Trelec Tower. He pressed his hands on the cold glass, carefully arranging his left hand so it covered the reflection of his wife. After a few minutes, she turned the light off, 
pulled the covers up over her bare shoulders and curled her knees to her chest. That's some really bad sex. <laughs> if that the bad sex award was for actually really actually bad sex, sex. <laughs> uncomfortable, I awkward sex, I hope it's bad sex written, you know, it's in, bad in sex a way that wouldn't, very win well. a, that wouldn't win a bad sex award for the writer. Uh, oh no, it's not. It's it's not going to win that award. That's that's one that it's, I'd like it's to not going to win. Though. Would you? I will. Oh yeah. I'm sure somebody here can do that for you. <laughs> and that's also what's going to happen to you if you join the Alpha course. You'll have really bad sex forever. Um, <laughs> now there will be members in here. I know. I was just. I was going to ask that question, who's here from the Alpha Course? Because usually people turn up at, to the readings, there's somebody here, yeah, she's looking at she's like, I've had really good sex my whole life, honestly, Jesus made it happen. <laughs> um, so so, so, the, so the, 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 course, the course is kind of modelled um, um, on, on the Alpha Course. Let, talk to me about that, and also I know the microphone isn't magnifying no, your voice, but I we are recording you. Um, so I went... Uh, I guess where did you go on? I, I did go on one. Did you, and um, did you go on it because you were genuinely interested? I went on it for a couple of reasons. So I was at Oxford with a bunch of people who were kind of on the periphery of my friendship group, and they were incredibly beautiful. There were these sort of wonderful blonde-haired girls. Like, I mean, there must be members in here. Come on, you all look like them. <laughs> these very, very beautiful girls, and these very kind of you know preppy boys who followed them around like eager Labradors, and. Um, and I was kind of fascinated by them because where the rest of us were all kind of wigging out and having more or less horrific experiences, they seemed to have this centeredness to their lives. And every Sunday night they would go to a church, a kind of weird Gothic church in North Oxford, and have these incredible visions and speak in tongues. And, and the thing that really... Spe sorry, speak in tongues. Speak in tongues, so glossolalia, which is one of the things that the Alpha Course really promotes, which is this idea that there is a kind of non-rational way to God whereby you are possessed by the Spirit and, and have these incredible visitations and speak in uh, glossolalia or xenolalia, which is you can suddenly speak new languages. There's a lovely story by uh, a, a friend of yours and mine, Richard Holloway, mm. the, uh, the former Bishop of Edinburgh, who was convinced that he had suddenly been in, uh, infused with this spirit and could speak Chinese and he went up to, he'd been practicing on the train um, all the way from London to Edinburgh and at, on the Edinburgh station there was a Chinese lady there and he went up to her and started babbling away. She looked at him for a minute and then just turned and ran in the opposite <laughs> direction. Um, but I was, I was fascinated by this thing and then when I came to London so many of the people I met, you know, within the world of finance, within, again, my, my friends, were going to this thing. And it just, it seemed so different to the way it held itself out to be. Like, so the ad Alpha Course is heavily marketed as this kind of intelligent thinking way into religion. Well, it's um, kind of like a philosophy course yeah, it, with it, religion as, a, as an extra. Well, that's, and that's exactly what I thought it was. So, yes, I was really interested in it. Yeah. And I was astonished when I did it. Um, so I do you have to sign up? Can I just sorry for asking? Because sure. I don't know the answer. Do you have to sign up for a certain number, and does it cost anything? No. It, well, I mean, there are interesting ways of getting money out of you. So they they take ten percent of uh, of members' salaries. So you know there are many many people in the city earning multiple multiple millions. Uh, Holy Trinity Brompton, which is where I did the course, which mm. is kind of the heart of the uh, of the, of the movement, is. Um, took £7 million in their collection plate in 2007, which was the last time I had... Do they take plastic, or is it... <laughs> that's, a l like that's a lot of change. But I mean, it's just... <laughs> it's absolutely extraordinary, and it's a phenomenal movement. And one of the things I kind of resisted about the way the book was portrayed in the press was 
a devastating critique because actually what I tried to do with the book was to show why it was so successful, why these things offered something that just was lacking from these young people's lives. And I tried to be very fair to it. And actually where I ended up in my thinking about it was that I don't have any itch. I love the glossolalia. It's beautiful. If you hear it done well, and I've got a, I've got a recording of a, of a Trinidadian choir doing this kind of, they all get infected by the spirit. Now, that's probably not the right word, but... Um, <laughs> um, Excited. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and they speak in these wonderful tongues, and it's a beautiful thing. So I didn't have a problem with that. What I had a problem with was the approach to sexuality, to homosexuality, to telling young people not to have sex with each other is one way of making sure they do it and that they feel bad about it. And I think that's not a good thing. So they're, so they're not happy with sex outside marriage? or Not happy with sex outside marriage. Although, of course, the young people, because they're young people, find every single way of circumventing this interdiction. So it's, you know, kneecaps, armpits, anything you can. It's just not the... You that's know. desperate. <laughs> so and and obviously so they, so they're they're going off at some point in in the book they go off onto uh, a retreat, mm. um, which basically just is an is a, is a, is a, I mean you, I'm reading it and it reminds me of that bit in um in the secret history it's kind of like you know the the kind of bacchanalia you know they go they go bonkers yeah. they get wasted and they have sex in a wardrobe, <laughs> which um, obviously picks up on uh, C.S. Lewis is really the guiding <laughs> spirit. <laughs> Um, but it's interesting. You get given you get given a little book when you join the Alpha Course, and it is there are more quotes from C.S. Lewis than there are from yes. the Bible, um, and he is absolutely the guiding spirit behind the Alpha Course. But um, the I was always fascinated by the retreat, and and you know absolutely the secret history was the great influence behind it. It's a book I love, and it's a book that I kind of again these people made me think of those mm. characters in the secret history where. I sort of looked down on my real-life friends after I left the world of the secret history because they weren't as cool as the people in the secret history, that I loved that book so much. Um, if my real-life friends are, are, are listening, <laughs> I, I got over it. You, you got more interesting. Um, and there were no fatalities among And there were no fatalities. This <laughs> is quite crucial. Um, but, but it was this idea, you know, I think all novelists love this idea of a closed world, of a closed mm. room, of, of a way of upping the pressure on your characters. And it was always clear from this group of very, very close university friends that there were tensions amongst them that would slowly tug them apart. But it was taking them the, to this weekend retreat in a, in a, in a mansion in, in Oxfordshire owned by one of the, one of the course financiers um, and then just seeing what happened to them. And, and, and it, was, it was a wonderful thing to write. I, I really loved it. But actually, and I hate to say this, the real-life Alpha Course retreats take place in travel lodges in Swindon. Um, that, that, and that is perverse. <laughs> which is, I imagine more or less the same things happen, but it's just a less uh, picturesque backdrop. Um, so there is a kind, there's a sort of link between your first book and the, and, and the second book, and that that, um, and we've talked about this before, in that the the Alpha Course um, operates in the city. I mean, they get a lot of money from there, but I mean, I didn't realise how embedded they were. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, well, I wrote I wrote a piece for the Independent on Sunday's Easter issue about evangelism in the city about how these evangelical movements were going into the city there were you know kpmg has their own alpha course um these things are there i i spend a lot and actually you know again i think it's very easy to be a bit sneery about this and to say you know isn't there something about the camel and the eye of the needle um and i had one very interesting conversation with an alpha course member who started off trying to persuade me that earning a million pounds a year wasn't that much money you know well once I've paid my tax and I do pay some of my tax <laughs> um, and I've paid my school fees and I pay you know and anyway um, but but there were some people who were genuinely uh, 
you know, absolutely committed to this idea of stewardship, to this idea of the fact that they were looking after this money for the next generation and that they, this was something that they'd been called by God to do. There's a barge by Canary Wharf um, that holds alpha courses. And, of course, it sort of saw numbers shoot up during the financial crash when people were, were, were circling around for something to latch Some onto, kind of some certainty. way of, of making sense of things. So, again, where I ended up <laughs> with that one was... Isn't it better that our bankers have some form of moral code, even if it is, you know, one could certainly, if one were being cynical, pick some, some holes in it. Isn't it better that they have some sort of belief system rather than the kind of empty, Darwinistic, doggy mm. dog morality that has ruled for the past however many years and, and, and whose fruits we are now reaping now? The, tell us about the kind of, um, oh, somebody's got away with something. <laughs> it's a banker. <laughs> with a bonus, uh, so, so so tell us about the, um, sorry my chain of thoughts maybe off there about the, um, the, the 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 kind of charismatic leader and 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 his wife who's kind of he's kind of Blair esque um, and the inspiration for him yeah well I mean Tony Blair was absolutely the inspiration oh, this yeah. idea of a sinister cult headed by a charismatic leader who kind of sucked you all in and made you all believe that he was going to do something wonderful and then mm. up ended up kind of grubbing around on the floor for five pound notes I mean it. it uh, you know, the first time I voted was for him. The, I, I was a real proper devotee, and I found what happened absolutely kind of humiliating mm. for both him and me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, he was... Uh, and, and also, the other thing is, this is this charismatic priest who gets up and makes these long, impassioned speeches, and it's very difficult to do speeches in a novel because you need a voice. And, of course, Tony Blair does have this incredibly replicable voice. He's got this kind mm -hmm. of preachy style. And, of course, his own uh, religious convictions are, I think, interesting, to say the least. And perhaps one could pick holes in, 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 in that as well. But, uh, but I did. I just thought he was, a, he was a perfect character for this priest. And also, I didn't want to get sued by the Alpha Course by making it the Alpha Course guy. Well, I was going to ask you, you haven't, you haven't been sued. No, they've actually... Do you know what? They've actually been really... Good, because I think I had a chat. Well, you know, they do turn up to events I do, and I've had interesting conversations with them, and I think some of the more intelligent ones do recognize that there are issues with the way that they teach. There are also issues with the way that it is interpreted um, by different priests. So you get, the, you get the kind of documents, but the priest at, a, at each church gets to kind of decide how he interprets mm. them. Um, and so... They, I think they, you know, they haven't sued me. We've had some interesting discussions. We, they tried to... I did a Richard Bacon ra Radio 5 show um, where, slightly catching me by surprise, he asked for Alpha Course members to, to phone in. And... Um, <laughs> And, I, and obviously, one, what I didn't want to do was come across as this, like, yeah, you're all fucking idiots. Yeah. Um, and um, although the guy who, there, who tried to persuade me, he, he said, test me on a language. I can spit... <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to do that because I'm only going to make you look silly. You know, uh, Sanskrit. Um, and, but, <laughs> but, you know, they, they, some of these people... It means a huge amount to some of these people, yeah. and I really didn't want to be this kind of snide. No, you're not. I think you're, qu you're questioning, and I think you start out from a kind of equivocal place, and you, you move towards the end with the story, which is not, you know, it's, it's about the characters, and it's about their relationships, and something terrible that happens. Um, but, you know, I, do, I, I think it, it would be very, it, it wouldn't be so enjoyable if you, started, if, if you started out kind of banging your drum in that way. Mm. But they might ask for 10% of your royalties. Um, <laughs> questions? Sylvia. Hello. Hello.
So the, the, the question is kind of, broad, kind of more broad-ranging than the book, I guess, but that everyone's engaged in a search for meaning, particularly the people on the Alpha course, they're looking for something that's lost um, um, or a sense of community that's been eroded. What is it that you think has, has got them to that stage? Yeah, I mean, I think people have always been looking. I think it's kind of one of the platitudes that we tell ourselves in each generation is that we are the lost ones. Mm. And, you know, you only have to look back to... I mean, maybe the Belle Epoque, maybe things were okay in, in, <laughs> the, in the early 20th century. But, you know, ever since the First World War, you had, um, you had generations telling themselves that they were creating art to find a way of expressing the kind of existential rage. And I, I just think, you know, we have perhaps more than... More than but again, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about saying this more than any other generation. What I think is going on now is this, you know, very much a sense of disempowerment amongst young people. And I think that's astonishing. And, you know, I've done the student marches. I'm, I teach at UCL and, and, uh, and I go on the, the marches with my students and, uh, and just talking to them and understanding quite how um, disenfranchised they feel, quite how divorced from any kind of political engagement beyond sheer rage. Um, and, you know, and also the city, I think the city, that I'm fascinated by that moment of leaving school or university and coming to big cosmopolitan areas where you don't have a heart to your existence, where you don't have a place where you can go and always be sure of seeing somebody who has got a kind of shared network of experiences and emotions and who you don't know the history of. And, and I certainly felt myself kind of spat out into the world when I left university. And so, uh, but I think that's no different to, you mm. know, that's what Brideshead is about. That's what so many novels are, are, are about. I'll take another question. Oh, yes, you. Um, what opinion did you form of Nicky Gumbel? <laughs> oh, what opinion did you form of Nicky Gumbel? Uh, Nicky Gumbel is the leader of the Alpha course. And, and kind of, I mean, they, they, he pretty much formed the whole thing. He changed it into something. So I think one of the things that, that the book tries to talk about is the um, is the way that it has become a corporation, is the way that it has begun selling itself aggressively as a, you know, it is, it, it, it's branching out into China, India. There are, um, I mean, just ridiculous numbers. 13 million have done the course worldwide. What I thought of him personally was he's incredibly charismatic, as one would expect from a charismatic priest. Um, I thought he was very, very intelligent. Um, I was interested by the fact that I did it with another friend from Oxford, and amongst the 50 or 60 people who did the course in that go, we both found ourselves in his group and we were both you know I was working for a hedge fund my friend was at the UN it was you know these were kind of young high-flying people just the sort of people that the alpha course is targeting at the moment and I I thought it was more than a coincidence that we were there and he really kind of took us under under his wing for the time we did it and I had some fascinating conversations I mean I was absolutely I was out from the beginning I thought it would be hypocritical not to say to him you know I am a kind of agnostic atheist I actually became slightly less religious as I as I did it um and and more afterwards actually but 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 that's a kind of another story but I <laughs> I um I I found him you know utterly persuasive as you would imagine he would be I'll take so yeah. so we'll, uh, we'll talk about after one last question in your research 
and you <laughs> in, in your research, how far did you go um, with, with the Alpha course? How involved did you get? And did you end up speaking in tongues? Um, again, I was, I was very aware of the concern that I could be seen as in some way, you know, leeching off other people's genuine religious experiences. I didn't go on the retreat, partly because it was in a travel lodge in Swindon, um, <laughs> but partly because it was clearly a place where people were having authentic religious experiences. They knew that I wasn't down with all that, and they, I was worried that I was in, would in some way inhibit what they would go through if I did that. So I did six weeks of it, and actually the reason I left was because it was the weekend after the retreat, and everyone had changed utterly. Everyone who was in the least bit cynical beforehand had become totally, uh, you know, monomaniacal about the thing, and I just felt there is nothing more for me to see here. Do you think it was ever possible that you could have completed it and it could have changed you completely, do you think? Uh, I, I worried about that. I really did. I, you know, because there is something incredibly attractive about it. I was totally convinced by the authenticity of, of the people who were there. They were very pretty girls. Um, it was, you know, the idea of having this kind of safety net where you've got a social network, you meet your, f your future partner there as long as you're not gay. Um, but if you are, they'll cure you. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, you know, you have business networking opportunities and you have, you know, a, a philosophical system that has lasted 2,000 years. It was attractive. I just, I, I guess I like weird sex too much to <laughs> get into that. <laughs> On that note, Alex Preston, thank you very much! <laughs>